Vodka. 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 Vodka o'clock. Hey everyone, welcome back to Vodka Clock. It's Amber Love from AmberOutonHouse.com. Don't forget, we're labeled as an explicit website and podcast because I do tend to say some pretty vulgar things. Um, but, finally, finally, I get to welcome back Dirk Manning to the show, who hasn't been on in quite some time. Uh, he's been kind of busy. Um, you know, so welcome back. Thanks. It's very, very, very good to be back. I, as you as you know firsthand, I've... Uh, I've been pretty swamped, been on the road and all that good stuff. So I'm glad we can finally hunker down and catch up on all things uh, relevant. Do this. We are doing this. Finally. Um, yeah, so we're going to preface this because uh, whenever I talk to you, I have to tell people that we are likely going to be over an hour because we always are. Yes. Um, well, we, we enjoy each other's company. I know. It's just very, you know. I don't know. It just works. It works. So, um, time will fly, even if we go over an hour. Right. So we will talk about all the the comic book stuff, and then we usually talk about some life stuff, and that's mm-hmm. that's the way it goes. And you've got like eight million things going on right now, so I figure it would take a considerable amount of time to talk about. Um, I, I I will try to uh, be very. Uh, Brief and succinct in my answer. Yes, I well, because I you try to say it with a straight face, and, and can't. You can't. You know you're lying. It's, uh, but it's one of those things where now that even among those eight million things that you're doing, you even have you know your own show with decapitated Dan, and um, so I'm just not going to let you rehash the same shit that you say on other shows because that's not the point. Well, on that show, we talk about two things that, generally speaking, you're not typically a fan of, which is uh, at Monsters and Metal, we talk about horror movies and horror comics and heavy metal. Yes. So those, those are topics that I would think that we're pretty safe in regards to not getting into too much with you. Yeah, but you always you always take time to, you know, run through your your schedule of stuff, so your uh, own stuff, your work. Well, I, I'm, I'm for those that don't know what uh, Ms. Love is referring to is I am in the uh, I'm on the tail end now of doing 13 shows in 13 weeks. Yeah, I know, right? Almost done. I know. So it's, I mean, when when I refer, it's like, the reason I talk about that, it's like that's been my life for like over three months, uh, is, is being on the road every weekend, so. Right. And I'm going to, you know, I think I handled it pretty well that, um, that you know, Dan won the blogger award that I did not win. <laughs> I know. He was like, I should have been there. And I'm like, well, uh, yeah, but, but. I was just going to take it, but it was engraved. It actually did have his name on it, didn't it? Say. <laughs> it did. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm glad that I can say that I am, uh, I am, um, friends with, uh, two wonderful bloggers and that one of them won. So that's, that's, you know, that means next year's your year. Oh, well, well yeah. You there. What? We'll help you. We'll we'll help get you there we'll, with the. We'll we'll help uh, continue to spread the loveliness of the show to okay. help possible. Okay, and that was at Detroit Fanfare, which is one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and you know, get, get, get you a little recap on that because um, I know you've done, like you said, a, like all year. You've probably done like twenty shows or something. So I don't know if it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know. If you count since last January, I haven't counted how many shows I've done this year. Uh, I've probably, when all said and done, I'll probably have done, let's see, 14, 
Oh God, it's probably it's it's under twenty. I know it's under twenty, but it's probably very close, and maybe just twenty. Okay, and um, so so we got to be together at Detroit Fanfare, where you let me invade your booth next to uh next to Seth and uh, one of your collaborators. You have, uh, he was next to you, and we were sandwiched between him and uh, Eric Powell. I know, like between two of my favorite people, and then even in the in, even being the meat in an Eric Powell Seth Demu sandwich, then you were like the condiment to my meat. If that's not too, uh, oh, that works. <laughs> that sounded a lot worse than I meant it to. I would say I could do a co-meat, but I don't. I'm just gonna shut up. But yes, you got to you got to come uh, make my booth your home base, which was. Fantastic, and and I certainly hope that you you post uh, with the um, uh, website portion of this interview your amazing, amazing costume that helped celebrate uh, my uh, story in Dia de la Mortis, which I had uh, the trade paperback debut at the show and sold out because you were being all Dia de la Mortis at the booth. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, I know, because you posted a picture on, I think it was Thursday night before Fanfare. Yeah, on Friday. That that those arrived. And I had been planning this outfit for months (laughs) 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 and kept it quiet. Yes, yeah, I had no, I had no idea. It was very serendipitous. Um, Yeah, I actually got the Dia de la Mortis books Thursday night and then, uh, you know, was in Detroit on Friday, so... Uh, that was pretty crazy. That all worked out. Yeah, yeah. It uh, so it was fun. They had they did have a, a lot of cosplay there because they had a huge contest going on. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Sunday was madness because they it was like kids' day and they did a trick or treating thing and um, it was just madness on Sunday. Usually the Sunday of a show is quiet. Everybody's tired and less people, but it was insane. Well, Detroit knows what they're doing, too. The Detroit Fanfare crew, you know, um, Dennis and Tony and Gary. Because uh, one of the things that's so wonderful is, is you know, they open uh, Sunday at noon. Right. Which psychologically, I mean, they could open at like 1130. Psychologically, it would not be the same thing. The fact that they actually open at noon, it's just like such a mental thing. Like I can sleep into like 11:30 and jump in the shower and throw on, you know, do my hair and throw on my suit and just go. You know, it's just so wonderful. And and uh, kind of reverse role reversal here for a second because you know, like you said, there's so many kids there on Sunday and it's such a cool show. And it being in Detroit, I mean, the elephant in the room with that show is a lot of people go, oh, it's in Detroit. I'm not going to Detroit. Well, technically, it's in Dearborn, which in is like Dearborn, this yeah. high end suburb of Detroit, and you even expressed a certain amount of playful trepidation, at least, about the notion of going to Detroit. Oh, yeah, no, I wasn't playful. <laughs> no, I was, I was dead serious. Well, what did you think of, uh, what did you think of your uh, Detroit experience? Well, like you said, since all I got to see was the airport, um, I have to say their airport staff is way lovelier than Newark. Uh-huh. Um, in Newark, it was just awful, awful, awful on every level. <laughs> and um, so, if people don't, if people didn't follow my Twitter, uh, because that was my only sanity, really was was that the fact that I had a phone. Um, the my plane had something wrong with it. It was and, a gremlin. I'm not mistaken. Like yeah, there was a gremlin on the wing. Um, <laughs> and so I was already like really scared. 
and then I'm in the terminal, and they're talking about how the flight is delayed, and they come over the PA, and they actually use the words, there's a problem with the plane, and we're waiting for the maintenance crew to tell us, you know, give us an update. And every 15... This is in in Newark. This is in Newark. So every 20 minutes, I think it was, they they scheduled announcements every 20 minutes, and they would come on and say the exact same thing. So I, at that point, at a a certain point, I was sitting on the floor next to an outlet just so that I could make sure that um, my devices were charged. And I was just a fucking mess. And I was on... I was on... uh, Facebook and Twitter, and I was bawling my eyes out for three hours. I it just I had my sunglasses on, and I was just crying for three hours, and that included the entire flight because then I we finally got on, and it was like an hour and fifteen minute flight, and I think I I cried until I saw you, and that was you know. so Newark wasn't very good, but what like how was the Detroit con experience? Well, the con was great. That was the thing. I mean, the hotel was really amazing. I was mm-hmm. one. Of, I always think it's one of the smartest things to do is to have a show in a big hotel. I mean, this the hotel was massive. Yeah. And it uh, was just ridiculously. You just one of those like for people who haven't been there. It's like one of those like beehive complexes. You know, I call it. It's like you know, you get like rooms and like the center is all hollow, and you like you look down and get vertigo and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, you kind of uh, slow as shit elevators though. I don't know what the deal with the elevators was, but they're the little the uh, when you go up to in the lobby the the little alcove to get to the elevators. It's like that scene opening scene in the Fifth Element or whatever, or or well the closing scene actually too, where they have like those pillars and you have to like throw the dust and like light, light the fire. Right. And all that. <laughs> they are there are these things in there, and that's where the buttons are to push. So it's uh you know beautiful beautiful hotel and yeah. uh and then once you started introducing me to people um I I felt like I had my own dedicated volunteer. I don't know if that was intentional or what that was, but Richie would come over and check on me like all the time because I was well, you were with you were with Dirk MF Manning. Yes, I was with you. So um yeah. Uh, although membership has its privileges, I guess. <laughs> if you're in Detroit, you're in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I got to finally, finally meet people that I, um, you know, only knew through Facebook too. So that was pretty awesome. And they do, yeah, they do a fun show. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good show. I, I, I really enjoy that show, and I know there's a, a lot of professionals out there that are like, oh, I want to go to a show in Detroit, and it's like. Dude, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, this year, obviously, we had, like, Jeff Smith. We had Eric Powell. We had um, uh, Ben McCool there and Jeffrey Brown with a lot of, you know, great Dirk Manning. A lot of people there. But uh, the word's really building on just what a cool show that is. So I'm just really excited because yeah. uh, it's a really nice show. It's a really good show. It's a fun show. As you know, it's a freaking party show. It's a party show. That was going to be the next <laughs> thing I said was it is a party show. Yeah. There is, I mean, like... Up till 3 a.m. every night parties. Yeah, those are just the scheduled parties. Those are the scheduled parties, yeah. Yeah. You know, by the time you get to like Saturday night, you know, it's like you can be up till 3, 4 in the morning easily. I think, yeah. You, you don't have to be on the floor till noon. Yeah. So yeah. it's just. It's just fantastic. It was. It was great because um, Action Lab was there also, so I got to see Dave Dwanch and Jamal. Um, <clears throat> 
and, you know, went out to breakfast with uh, Paul Story and Jamal, and they introduced me to Gordon Purcell, so that was fun. And uh, I don't know where the hell you were for breakfast. You just weren't around. I was you know, kind of surprised. <laughs> Paul, I'm just going to put this out there. Paul Story traditionally gets bagels. Right. I know. He told and me he about did, the bagels. And he didn't get the bagels. He didn't do it. So, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to face anybody. I couldn't bring myself to face Paul or anyone else in the morning without the bagels. Um, it just would have hurt a little too much. And I love Paul. Paul's a fantastic human being. He is one of the nicest guys I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. Straight up, genuine, awesome guy. Made more awesome by his awesome bagels. And uh, it just would have hurt too much to look at him across the table and know that I was not stuffing one of his amazing bagels in my mouth. Oh, okay. Not a, not a euphemism. Yeah. So I, I wept. I wept and, um, you know, just 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 got by and made do on uh, Rock and Rye. Yeah, so. I don't get it. I don't get it about that stuff. That was your first bagel. We didn't get you red pop, though. That's the bummer. We I thought you. that's what it was. No, 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 no. It's you and Eric Powell, the same thing. Rock and Rye and Red Pop are two totally different things. Okay. Well, next time I'm out, which will hopefully be soon. There you go. And uh, there, But since then, you've continued to do a million things. I have. And um, you finished the Tales of Mystery Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. That uh, was an experience. <laughs> With Devil's Due Publishing, so I got to meet uh, Josh Baylock from Devil's Due. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real good guy. You know, I'm really glad that, real solid dude. I'm really glad he's back on the scene. You know, Devil's Due kind of went away for a while. Yeah, uh, they had a lot of trouble for a while. They did. They did. And and, and it's no secret that they had trouble for a while. Um, Josh really went back to ground, kind of, and started deciding to build Devil's Due Entertainment back up from the ground up. And I really, really like the publishing model he's employing. I really like the strategy he's employing. He's very much a punk rock guy, and I'm very much a metal guy. So when you get, like, a punk rock guy and a metal guy together, because punk rock and metal, like, you know, people, I'm sure listen to your show and stuff, know that I did music journalism for years before I did comics, um, <clears throat> started writing comics. And punk rock has a very specific work ethic that's very similar to, like, metalheads have very, you know, metal bands, very, very, specific, you know, punk rock DIY, you know. And so you take, like, his, like, punk rock sensibility, and, like, my metal sensibility, and then you fuse those together, and it's it's just a, a wonderful thing. It's it's just a wonderful thing. I'm really excited to be working with Devil's Due. Uh, we did have the successful Kickstarter for Tales of Mystery, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, as I told Josh Ross, who's the artist on this, you know, um, and for those that don't know about Tales of Mystery, this was a, a series we actually published online several years ago. Uh, we did the first half of it. There's 13 eight-page stories. Uh, we published the first half, uh, took a hiatus, brought it back online, uh, republished the first half, and then finished the second, the whole thing, the other seven stories. Um and it's got like a horror, pulp, noir, Cthulhu mythos-inspired miniseries. It's in previews right now. Staff pick? I'm holding my thumbs up in the air so you can all... None of you can see it, but I am. Um, I changed my outreaching hand uh, motion to like the thumbs up. So yeah, we got like a staff pick through previews. Uh, Diamond absolutely saw it and just fell in love with it, which was like, oh my god, cool, man. But 
that being said, we had the successful Kickstarter. People that backed the Kickstarter had the option to be drawn into the book or have a character named after them or get a hardcover version that's like only to ki- limited to Kickstarter. And having done my first Kickstarter, there are so many freaking things I would do differently if I were ever to do it again. But like I was telling Josh, yeah, like I was telling, well, like, like I was telling Josh Rosto, we got it. We hit a goal. But everybody does that. Everybody, you know, you start out, especially, you know, it wasn't a, a, a small project. That's the thing. Like a lot of people will start out with something small and get their Kickstarter experience and yeah. lessons learned and stuff. And now I know you did a lot of research on, uh, who is it? It's Tyler that writes over at Comics Tribe, right? And he, uh, he does, he does a series of articles about, about Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, so there's a and lot to, to read up on and, and learn from people. And I started to get, you know, um, analysis paralysis, I call it. Uh, yeah, you're just looking at you so know, much. It was, I'm looking at so much stuff and all that. And, Bla- you know, Blaylock, I, I, I playfully bust his chops a lot about his spreadsheets. He's, a spreadsheet, he's the king of the spreadsheets. And uh, <laughs> would never guess that by looking at him. Uh, punk rock sensibility, man, you know. Uh, as Steven Tyler from Aerosmith once said, it takes a lot of money to look this poor. You know, uh, it takes a lot of uh, takes a lot of work to look that punk rock and still be that that on the tip. And Josh has been around a while, you know. Uh, we're pretty young. He's pretty young to be in the publishing game. We're we're about the same age, and to have a, a publisher the stature that he does, uh, he has a lot of experience. And with that has come a lot of success and some things that weren't as successful for him. But you know, a lot was learned. And he uh, he's the king of the spreadsheets now. And, so I, want, uh, I want to know though what your role is now that because I mean you wrote the book and you did the, um, all the publicity and stuff on the Kickstarter. Uh-huh. Um, so, the, like, what is it for you to do since you're already aligned with Devils Do? Like, what are they doing, and you know how much do you have to do? Like, are you going to actually be home packaging up boxes and shipping stuff out, or is that they're going to do all the fulfillment? We had, we had different levels of involvement that we could have done this for, and I made the decision, and I was going to literally have, like, a boxing and shipping party, like, have everybody I know, like, get pizza and stuff like that and have them come stuff envelopes with me and stuff like that. Um, ultimately, uh, I decided to, to, to work that out where Devils Do would be doing it. Uh, so because I have so many other projects going on right now, I've got the Big Dog Inc. stuff, um, Exclusive, uh, we're already planning Tales of Mystery Volume 2 through Devil's Due for 2014. Great. Uh, with Seth, uh, which very excited about that. Uh, and I kind of had to make that decision. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have them do it. Which for me, I- I've always been so hands on with everything I do. You know, I lick the envelopes, I stamp everything myself. It's like, just, just have them do it. He's got the staff to do it. So I'll be putting the book together, getting it to him, and then they'll be responsible for shipping everything out and things like that. Knowing full well that I'll be breathing down their neck every step of the way, so um, that that's how we're handling it this time. Devils do will actually be re- involved in shipping everything out. Um, I'll be kind of the middleman in that. Uh, people that order the signed book plate editions, I'm printing up the book plates. I'll be signing them, sending them to Josh Ross. He'll be signing them. He'll send them to Devils Do. They'll actually glue them into the books and things like that, and ship them out and all that stuff. So okay, great. Uh, um, it's, it's very much a, it's very much a, a partnership. I think it's very much a marriage between Devils Do and I uh, on, on this one to really make sure that they do certain aspects of it, I do certain aspects of it. Well, um, 
One of the things that I, you know, I was going to bring up anyway, so you mentioned Josh, is uh, he's also a tattoo artist uh, during, yeah. during the day. And in one day, two people came in asking for Mr. Retattoos. Yes. <laughs> and ha- that's, like, really fucking bizarre. And um, I know. have nothing to do with that either. I swear to you. I swear. I mean, it was like on Halloween, two people came in and got mystery tattoos from the Tales of Mystery artist. Yeah, that's just wild that is so i mean i i'm sure he was like crazy about it and you're blown away man uh one thing that I, I i i tell people a lot about the kind of work i do and stuff like that and you know i, I try to remain pretty approachable through online media and you know with my right or wrong columns and things like that i mean people know me pretty well um is that Re especially, Tales of Mystery especially. I mean, Nightmare World has its own very, very, very dedicated following. Mm-hmm. Tales of Mystery has an following that is even more intense than the already very intense Nightmare World crowd. Um, so it blows me away that two people got went to get Tales of Mystery tattoos from Josh on Halloween from Josh Ross. Where Where is his shop, do you know? Uh, Pennsylvania. I want to say it's by. You said it was somewhere by Allentown, right, or in Allentown? Yeah. Which is close to me. It's Mind's Eye Tattoo, and uh, it's Mind's Eye Tattoo. Uh, And I've actually talked about doing a signing at the tattoo shop, and like do like something like I wouldn't get a tattoo or something. You know, I'm tattoo free. Uh, but but have you know like do like a. a I'll I'll go get one though. It'll. Will will you get a mystery? Will you get like the mystery insignia? Yeah, sure, I don't know. Or, yeah, you can sign me. But there's can, a difference can, between sure and I don't know. I don't That's know. A That's a big commitment. I mean, it is a cool it is a cool little, you know, sigil. Uh-huh. Um, or you could sign me. You could sign me, and he could – have you seen the people that do that? They go and they get people to sign uh-huh. them, and then they get it tattooed over so that it's there, people's autograph. I won't ask you where you'd have me sign I Because I'm sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know if I do, and I don't know if I want to. Can I sign your forehead? No. No, I can't have anything visible for, you know, for work, so it has to be someplace. Do you do, that really limits the amount of places that this would be able to happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, God. I see what you did. Now, mind you, it would be visible for my modeling work. Oh, okay. All okay. the paintings done of me at that point would then have... <laughs> <laughs> signature. Well, this could be part of the spring tour, or the, actually, it'd be, if I do this, I'm gonna be, I don't know if I'll do it in the spring or maybe do a small winter jaunt. I don't know, but uh, yeah. the book, Tales of Mystery Volume One, because it's in previews right now, and it comes out in February. But we're actually going to put pictures of the tattoos that people got in the book, uh, and, and then do something where I, I might put a little thing in the book about anybody that ever gets tattoos, they'll automatically go into the next collection, and pretty soon we'll have, like, this army of tattoos, you know. But, but, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, because of your crazy schedule, um, are you, are you, are you done, like, are you tired? Are you too tired to do this again next year? Are you going to be even worse next year? <sighs> this has been a, a jaunt, man. Um, you know, this started because last year, I think I did five shows in five weeks, which was quite a bit. That was in the spring. That was still this year. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's why I'm pretty sure you're at 20 or more. And oh, my God. I'll have to go back and count. Maybe you can count. Because all, all of May, you were you were gone. 
all of May. Yeah, I guess you're right. Because I did C2E2, I did uh, Appleseed, I did DanCon, I think, I did, uh, I don't know what else I did. You some signings, you always do comic shop signings. And yeah, you probably did some signings somewhere. Wait, wow. Okay, well... So I wasn't sure if 2014 was going to be worse. Like, you know, you're having a good enough time that you'll make it. It's fun. You know, here's the thing. Like, last year I did five and five. And then my buddy Vic Dandridge, who's down in Columbus, he's a good buddy of mine. He's like, he's becoming the Columbus king, like the kingpin of the Columbus comic scene. Awesome, awesome guy. Very, very, very good guy. Good, uh, Good friend of mine. And I was set up next to him at Appleseed. It's at Cruz's, uh, Cruz's show. And he was like, yeah, man. He goes, that's pretty cool, but I, I, I did eight and eight once. And I'm like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to one-up him and do ten and ten. And just, you know, just playful, you know, gamesmanship, you know. And I was thinking about it, and one of the books I've been promoting on this uh, signing tour is Love Stories to Die For, uh, the flip book I did through Image the other month. And um, and then I thought about it. I'm like, you know, I'm like the spooky horror guy anyway. So I could do 13 and 13. And I'm like, ha, 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 13 and 13. There's no way I could even schedule that. And then I started comparing, like, all the shows I'm doing and, like, the comic shops that have been real supportive of me, like, you know, uh, Wonder World in Detroit, uh Chris Brown, uh, he has comics and more up uh, in Madison Heights, Michigan. And you got stores like Rupp's in Fremont, Ohio, a really well-known shop, and Vault of Midnight in Ann Arbor, and Pack Rat in Hilliard, and uh, Sean's Anime Comics and Anime, Anime and Comics in uh, Toledo, Ohio. So next thing you know, I realized with all these fall shows, and if these shops would all have me in, and the fact that I normally do some horror shows in the fall, like Cinema Wasteland, I did the, uh, the Flint Horror Con, I realized between horror cons, comic cons, and comic shop, all-day comic shop signings, uh, and then, you know, Akron Comic Con, which was an amazing one-day show. I know it sounds like Akron, Ohio. Yes, Akron freaking Ohio. Amazing, amazing show. Great guy, great show. I, I realized that, God, Dan, I, I could do 13 and 13. And uh, to be honest with you, and I'll get to your answer in a second, I promise. Technically, it was going to be 13 and 12. Because right. after the Flint, Horror, Flint Horror Con, I was going to do a midnight signing at Rupp's. Right. And I'm going to gross out your listeners. Driving from Flint to Fremont, I got sick. Um, and <laughs> dedication, I'm driving, driving, driving. And and mind you, I, I don't even know this. I, I mean, all I know is it was... Exclusive. He's just this like, I had to cancel, I had to cancel. I'm like, okay, why? I just, uh, trust me, I had to cancel. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't cancel stuff. But uh, I did the Flint Horror Show, and I had a little something to eat there. And I went and grabbed something to eat real quick. And I was kind of feeling a little off. And then after the Flint Show, I had dinner with a buddy of mine who I haven't seen in like seven or eight years. So, I mean, it was just really nice. I had a great time kept catching up with a good, good, good friend of mine. And it's one of those things that like, we haven't seen each other like seven or eight years. Didn't matter. Just picked up right where we left off, you know. So that was really nice. But even after I ate with him, then it was like it was getting worse. And it wasn't me eating with him that made it worse. It was like what I ate. I think beforehand it was kind of like, 
And I had to have Flint Coney dogs because I'm in Flint, Michigan, which is the home of the Flint Coney. So I had like Flint Coney dogs with him, and then I'm driving home, and I'm like, and all of a sudden it's like that. Oh God! And luckily I had a plastic baggie, like a like a grocery bag. Grab it and just, I mean, just driving like 75 miles an hour down the road. So then I'm driving. I'm like, okay, I got like the cold sweat. I'm like, look like I look in the mirror, mirror, look like like in a suit. Like I can do this. Okay, okay. It was like a two-hour drive, two and a half hour drive, I think, from Flint to to Rupps and Fremont or something like that. I don't remember how long, but not far, not far. You know, so I'm driving, driving. So I'm dri- and I'm driving for a couple minutes, and I realize in my left hand I'm holding a grocery bag of vomit. I'm oh my god! Pale, like like I have like the post puke, like the post food poisoning look of like you know like the black rings under my eyes, I'm all sweaty and clammy looking. I'm like, Ugh. and I have that epiphany. I'm like, I can't do this. So. <laughs> I called up I called up Rubs and I'm like, listen, man, I got food poisoning. I can't come in. So we'll just tack the show on to the end. Yeah. And technically then be doing thirteen and thirteen. Yeah. Which uh so be it. Because I was gonna say it was thirteen and thirteen, even though it's thirteen and twelve, I mean whatever, big you know, that's even kind of more hardcore, you know, but to do thirteen and twelve, but so now here's the real kicker on all this. So we get okay, fine, fine, fine. A while back, I made an arrangement with Rupps for to do his 22nd anniversary sale, okay, which, as it ends up, falls on December 7th. Yeah, I saw that logo image graphic thing that they had made, and I was thinking, okay, you're not done, are you? So now, technically and officially, although I'm going to bill this as 13 and 13, Technically, it's 14 shows in 14 weeks. Yeah. I love you, Victor, but suck it! Suck it! (laughs) And none of those are in New Jersey. I I almost had one in Illinois, but it's mainly been a Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, almost Illinois stint. It's just been like this Midwest passage. Although, you know, obviously I might be hitting New Jersey and Pennsylvania and stuff uh, this winter, depending what happens. But, uh, um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, so 14 shows in 14 consecutive weeks. So now, then 2014 is going to be worse. Is Oh, yeah. Likely. That's- question, wasn't it? Um, uh, very likely. I, you know, the catch is getting my writing done, because I got my whole Oz thing done, uh, the Legend of Oz, um, you know, story arc. I had that written and in the can already. I have Revolume 1 written in the can. I have the first issue of Revolume 2 written and in the can, but I'm going to be doing some more stuff. It just got announced I'm doing the Ursa Minor annual for Big Dog Inc. Uh, Revolume 2, as I announced here a minute ago, is officially slated uh, for 2014. And I do a lot of writing on the weekends mainly. So being gone for over three months, you know, three and a half months straight on weekends, which is my prime writing time, because I do work a day job, uh, or two day jobs really, uh, um, I don't know. 
we'll see. This has been a really cool experience. It's been wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to, um, you know, get to see so many people and, uh, you know, go to so many comic shops that support me so much. And a lot of these shops have supported me for a long time. You know, Vault of Midnight supported me for a long time. Dennis at Wonderworld, you know, I mean, uh, all these shops have supported me and stuff like that. And if I can continue to bring customers in there and hang out and drink Shirley Temples, you know, um, I, I I may do it over a little more extended period. I wouldn't mind doing like a week on, week off type thing. Um, I, th- I think that sounds wise. We'll see what happens. We'll because see. well, and one of the other things is, um, you know, uh, because of course I'm certain you listen to the show. Um, that I uh, usually like once, if not twice a year, get to the gaming conventions here, and we do. We, we also have steampunk shows. That's what Jersey's really big on, and um, we have great gaming conventions and steampunk shows. And you happen to be involved in the Clockwork Empire RPG, so you've got steampunk and it's an RPG. Uh-huh. It's like one yeah. more yeah. reason you should be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. I'm going to be spending a lot of this winter, along with putting Revolume 1 together and, and finishing the scripts for Set the Moose for Revolume 2, which is going to be so freaking good. Um, he's almost done with the first issue, and it's just just amazeballs um yeah i've been i've been doing writing for uh like you said a steampunk victorian horror role-playing game called uh, uh clockwork empire uh which uh, i'm doing a lot of prose writing for that which most people mainly know me for my comic writing uh, but i'm doing a lot of prose writing for that uh, they've been really happy with the work i've been doing with them and I've been really happy to work with them. It's just that they have such a great – I'm not a big gamer guy. I've played role-playing games in my day, um, and they're really cool when they're done right. And uh, Clockwork Empire is just an amazing game. I mean, it really – it's really it's just a really breath of fresh air, man. It's just a whole new approach to how to fluidly play a game like that without what do you do, what do you do, what do you do, okay, you know, and – People get shot and all this, you know, and it's like, you know, oh, well, luckily I've got, like, plus 10 armor, and it's a whole different system. Uh, it, it, I like the Clockwork Empire games, because if someone pulls a gun, it's like, you surrender or you are going to die. <laughs> it's not. It's like, in real life, if someone shoots you, you are dead. It's like, oh, I got shot three times at Adventure and Lived, or that campaign. It's like, no, man. If someone pulls a gun, you are effing screwed. And it's a very morality-based game. It's just a wonderful concept. I, I, I'll, I'll take mini bragging rights for a second that I actually incorporated some things with them into the game and some of the characters that, that really has become trademark. Um, the first big pro story I wrote for them is about the witch finders and, uh, or the witch hunter. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't want to get, that's, that's there. You can have them on the show and they can talk to you about everything. But, uh, yeah, hook me up. I will. They'll be good guests, but uh, I'm really excited about that, too. So I'm going to be doing a lot of writing for them. So we'll see We'll see what happens. Uh, if they want to uh, bring me out to work a booth with them, I will. I'll be there in a heartbeat. Because that's the other thing, too. You know, I mean, I'm working with Big Dog Inc. I've got stuff with Devil's Due right now. I still continue a good relationship with Shadowline over at Image, uh, you know, and, and the Clockwork Empire guys, you know, so... So it's, you are a bo- you're like the booth babe now. <laughs> except, 
and uh, no, I, 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 I'm just there to work, man. I'm just there to sell stuff. I don't. People don't take pictures with me, or when they do, obviously my face is covered because I don't want to break their cameras. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be a real. 2014 is going to be interesting. I don't know what my convention schedule looks like yet. I know I'm planning on doing DanCon. I'm planning on doing C2E2, which is just an amazing, amazing show. Um, I'll do Motor City in Detroit or um, Appleseed. No, and I'm doing uh, Appleseed. Yeah. So spring's really looking pretty big. Um, like I said, I may hit, uh, to be determined, some shows out east uh, in the winter and spring. Um, honestly, I have not traveled out east much in many years, and I know that needs to change because I know you've got a contingent of listeners out there, and I'm not ignoring you guys, I, I promise. Uh, I haven't even been to Pittsburgh Comic Con in years, and I just need to really start now um, – Heading east, young man, I guess, as they say. Yes, it's a directive. And I, I will be direct. Sorry. You, Got yeah, it. it is a directive. It's a direct order. Direct order. <laughs> Do it! Um, but one of the things that you just mentioned was the Ursa Minor annual. So I'm all I know of Ursa Minor is that it's like a constellation and a bear. So what exactly is this book? It's uh, one of Big Dog Inc.'s uh, books. It's about a werebear. And it's about a werebear who hunts vampires. It's, it's, oh, okay. I'm expecting it's going to be cute and fluffy, right? It's going to be cute and fluffy and, like, all ages and adorable and and something that's not scary. <laughs> um, it kind of has, like, a stone man and a werebear and a lot of really nasty vampires. Um, a great horror book, you know. And I've said this time and time again. Um, Big Dog Inc. is one of those publishers that's really just getting a lot of traction right now. And uh, to draw a correlation between them and, say, I draw a correlation between them and, like, early cross-gen. You know, for those old-school fans like me that remember cross-gen. But without all, like, the interconnective sigil wankiness. But rather, really high-end, high-quality books. Very well written. Tom, historically, has written most of the books. Very, very good writer. Very, very high-end art. And now what's starting to happening is, like, they brought me in to start doing some writing here and there. Obviously, I'm doing the uh, four-issue arc on The Legend of Oz, The Wicked West, which is their flagship title. Uh, I'm going to be handling all three stories in the Ursa Minor book. Uh, Ursa Minor is just this great horror comic. And it's, you know, uh, it's a werebear versus vampires. And, and I'll say the same thing about this book that I said about... Legend of Oz, The Wicked West, and that's this. And I've said this to them. I've said this to, to Tom and Kim's faces. The concepts work better than they have any right to. And it's truly a testament to how, good, how, how well the books are written and how good the art is, how good the production value is. I mean, you take The Wizard of Oz and put it in the Wild West. It's like, it just sounds like a hokey thing. Like, oh, okay, They're, they got guns and, and they ride horses. No, it's a great book, man. It's ridiculously good, you know. And, and the same with Ursa Minor. Uh, I know Ursa Minor. Tom always talked about how good the book was, and it's like okay. And when I finally, you know, sat down and, and read it, I, I was just blown away. The art's amazing. It's a great concept, uh, and I'm just absolutely positively tickled that. that I'm actually going to be writing the whole three different stories in the annual, uh, and I'm going to tell everybody, man, far and wide, you know. Um, People are noticing this with Image, uh, creator-owned books and things like that. It doesn't have to be all Marvel and DC. And this isn't a bash on Marvel. It's not a bash on DC. But you got books like Image, and you got stuff like the Big Dog Inc. stuff coming out, and the Dark Horse books that are less corporate character-centric, you know, uh, 
Spider-Man cannot change at this point. Those of you that think that, you know, oh, well, Dr. Octopus is Spider-Man, you know, okay, but Spider-Man's still Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, uh, at the end of the day, the changes are all cosmetic. Wolverine's got a gun now. Okay, great, but Wolverine is still Wolverine. You know? And my buddy Ryan Stegman's drawing that book, and I'm super excited for him. I came up through Golden Goat Studios with him. He's a great guy, and I'm super excited. But anybody that believes that the changes on DC book, even DC books or Marvel books, are anything past cosmetic are really fooling themselves. Uh, instead, you look to books like Image and Big Dog Inc. and books that are fresh and people can do whatever the hell they want with them. Right. And, uh, and, you know, Action Lab is, is one of the good Action Lab, 215 Inc. Um, they're doing right. 215 Inc. All these guys doing great. It's nice to see, um, see me. And you know they 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 struggle too. But um, Action Lab just they had just had some big changes. Um, Kelly Dale and Jamal are now handling like PR and promotion stuff. So um, I know that if anybody ever has Action Lab questions, you can just go right to Jamal and Jamal Eigel. He will take care of you. Yeah, and these are great guys and and gals, great people, great creators that. There's been a lot changing in the industry, and we first saw this, you know, with with the prevalence and the acceptance of digital comics as a legitimate venue. And whether you look at Action Lab or 215 or Big Dog Inc. or Devil's Do or what have you, um, people are accepting now the technologies there. Oh, I can read a comic on my phone or on my iPad or iPod or whatever the whatever it is or Kindle. And it's legitimate. It's a real comic. People put the real amount of work into this, you know. Uh, and readers are catching up now, too, that it, it, it can be an independent book. It can be a book that maybe you haven't heard of before. Um, well, yeah, Mark Wade is, um, you know, sort of one of the pioneers at this point as well. I mean, it's one of the things where the stuff's been been available digitally for a long time, and now people are starting to come up with new business models and distribution models for making online comics different so yeah. um, another example and, and and you know when i started doing this stuff i'm gonna pat myself on the back because if i don't blow my own horn no one else will who else was putting fully realized comics online in 2002 this guy but the catch was back then there were dial-up modems you know, I mean, it was like, wee, wee, bong, bong, you know, and the pages would load real slow. It's a whole different ballgame now. And print-on-demand and stuff like that, I mean, it's just a whole different model. And people are catching on, and it's just super exciting right now. It's just a super exciting time. And, and you know, Image, I think, is really receiving the, the brunt of this wave of change in regards to um, – you know, people checking out non-corporately controlled books. and Well, what bothers me is on Comixology is that they still really um, have the the Marvel and DC stuff, like, right there and right up front. And to look for anything else, you kind of have to go look for it. Like, you have to know what it is that you're looking for. Um, that's uh, You know, I'm sure that they'll be able to make some changes, maybe put in, uh, like, when you, like, when you go to Amazon and you look at a book or... And, and you, you know, or music, whatever, there'll be recommendations at the bottom. People who bought this also bought this. So maybe Comixology will be able to have something like that. Like, okay, if I'm reading this Dirk Manning book here, um, and then maybe there'll be recommendations or something that would, I don't know, maybe help shoppers out 
Um, we, uh, well, and, 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 and Comixology is wonderful. I, it's so funny. I remember several years ago being at a show when Comixology was passing out business cards saying, come join our little online network. We're going to digitally distribute comics. And so many people were, like, throwing the cards away. And I'm like, yeah. yes, it begins. And there was a couple others at them, like Longbox and stuff. But uh, the, what you're talking about is the golden rule applies. He who has the gold makes the rules. Oh, you know? yeah, of course. I mean, Marvel and DZ have a lot of that. That's Warner Brothers and Disney, man. That's a lot of money. And they still are a majority of the uh, mainstream market share, you know. So, um, but it's just an interesting time. And, and, and the industry is still to a point where we need a healthy Marvel and we need a healthy DC to have a healthy image, to have a healthy Dark Horse, to have a healthy Big Dog Inc., to have a healthy Devil's Do. Uh, even kind of, sort of, but maybe not even so much anymore. I was going to say they have a healthy convention circuit, but even that's, I think that's where we're seeing the winds of change for the first time now, is, uh, you know, you don't need Marvel and DC set up at some of these shows to be really successful, so it's well, interesting. that it's a, was actually something that happened at <laughs> New York Comic Con. DC didn't even have a booth. Yeah. And New York's doing fine. And that was just astonishing. And I don't. And it was funny because you know everybody thought, well, this is absurd. They had they had displays, but that was it. And um, I didn't even see them. Like I, I have no idea. I went over. The only time I went through the main floor there was I went over to the uh, Avatar booth and to Titan Comics, and to and Jim Stranko's booth. <laughs> my new my new boyfriend, Jim Stranko. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's for sure. What was that? There's worse boyfriends to have than Jim Stranko. I'd be Jim Stranko's boyfriend if you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I didn't even go to those main booths anyway. I mean, I had very specific things that I wanted to see in the main room, and that was to go to Avatar and Titan. And um, Avatar, another publisher that's really just continuing to fire in all cylinders. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and um, I mean, I would like to see Dynamite. They don't. They never table anywhere ever. Like since. Dynamite. Dynamite, Boom, those are two other ones that are Boom Arcade. Are, oh, it's just such an interesting time right now. Yeah. So, but I am. But speaking speaking of uh, Dynamite, there, uh, you know, that I'm going to uh, Virginia Comic Con next weekend for the first time, and I'm going to be a demonic booth babe. Yeah. Join us. Join us. So, um, we'll get you there. I've told you for a long time, we'll get you there. We'll get you into the horror scene. Don't worry. See, I like fluffy horror, you know? Like, I like pamphlets. It's kids' horror. <laughs> I love pamphlets. I wish that people out there could see my face when you said pamphlets. <laughs> it's amazing. A bowl of, like, turds. No. You would love it. No, no, no. I, no. Oh, it's not great. I know you, and I then you would love it. I should, I should. No, be... I mean, you know, that's the thing. You know, like stuff like vamp. I mean, honestly, I mean, as much as a hardball and being about it, stuff like vamplets. You're talking to a guy. I, I enthusiastically support stuff like Twilight and like the vamplet stuff. Anything and Twilight is not well written, and that's not why I defend it. I defend it because it is a gateway for teen girls, especially to horror. And I'm a huge, huge proponent. I don't care if it's Twilight. Honestly, I don't care if it's Vamplets. Anything that can expose and make good horror accessible, 
you know, to, to teens and teen girls and teen boys, you know, without it being uh, reduced to, like, blood and boobs. Uh, I, I took a little time and recently and I watched um, VHS 2, which was a horror movie anthology, and uh, uh, saw that one of the... One of the uh, short films in it lifted from a concept I used in Tales of Mystery, as a matter of fact. But anyway, unbeknownst to me, I was like, I'm going to get angry watching this. But no, uh, but VH- VHS was a really good horror anthology, but very excessive, like, boobage. And VHS, too, within 30 seconds, unnecessary boobage. And I'm like, really? And I know a lot of teenage guys, for example, watch horror movies because, you know, people are getting eviscerated left and right. It's like, yeah! And then you see, like, you know, big old knockers everywhere. And like, yeah! And it always bugged me because, like, I just want to watch a movie that, like, scares me or unsettles me or, like, or, like shows what people do in an extreme situation. What do you do if? You know, The Walking Dead TV show, you know. What would you do if? Uh... You know, you have a bunch of sick people in a zombie apocalypse, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is. So anything that brings teens to horror and can show them good horror and, and show them horror without the excesses of excessive sexuality or excessive violence, I'm a big, big fan of that. Well, yeah, so I have I have the, the boobage for horror, apparently, but um, it's not even going to be on display because the, uh, the character is actually really um, – conservative it's from it's it's a period piece and from dead irons so uh i'm gonna be playing annie bell annie bell from dead irons and i so the the boobs will be covered i know it's horror well no that's fine it's you know horror women don't have to be vampirilla or lady death you know uh it it doesn't have to be that way you know it, it it shouldn't be that way you know, their boobs are out there. I get it, but uh, it's just a thing of mine. I mean, even in the most the darkest stuff that you'll see me write, you know, like mystery has some really dark stuff in it. You don't see excessive nudity and stuff like that. You don't see excessive sexuality. I think there's something really creepy about mixing sexuality with with violence or with terror. It's just well, yeah. There's a connection there, and people get off on it. Obviously. I, 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 I get that people say there's a connection, and maybe I'm just wired in a way that I see it, but, I mean, I understand the very stressful times create for very heightened tension and, you know, that war zone mentality, and I get it, but... So, so a, when I... Not, my, not your thing. So I will be so I will be a demonic booth babe for um, uh, the Dead Irons comic at Virginia, and then um, I know that... I will be getting a Mr. Reed t-shirt, right? Yeah. Right? Absolutely, yes. Didn't and to do. and um, so, if, so... Part of the Kickstarter is we, we're doing, we did Mr. Reed t-shirts. And we finally, we finally, finally, finally got the logo right. I cannot tell you how many logos we went through before we found the right one. And I get bigger. That's Jim Reddington for putting that, that logo together. It's just, it's just perfect. So I'm sure that... That Dirk's gonna make sure that my T-shirt is probably extra small. You a baby T? Yeah, get me an extra small size that I can wear at the booth, and I'll even like cut it up so it's a little like you know, cut it up, cut it up a little at the, at the top okay. there. Basically, what I'm gonna do is get you two mystery band aids. Okay, and, and pasties, mystery Not even just two band aids and a cork. <laughs> we'll be all set. Yeah. 
Uh, no. There, that was not, there was no reward for the mystery pasties. Otherwise, I would have picked that reward tier. There will never be mystery pasties. If I did do that, though, they would be like his face, like all <laughs> and pissed off looking. Like, oh, it'd be like was that old horror movie Mausoleum that had the uh, the creature with uh, little demonic bo- uh, faces on her boobs and oh, like. Yeah, people didn't believe me for years about this horror movie, and it's called Mausoleum, and this girl becomes possessed, and uh, somehow her boobs get demon faces on them, and start like, I, I, I don't even know the full extent of if she kills anybody with them or not, but yeah, Mausoleum, people, YouTube that one. All right, so... Yes. so I don't know how there... to demonic faces on boobs, but... Uh, you know. That's, that's not my bag. And, uh, the, yeah, our conversations are just, there's no point in having notes. <laughs> yeah, look at your notes! Where, where, are, where, are, we? where are we? Where are we? We actually did cover a lot. That I, 2014 annual Wear Bears, not cute and cuddly. Uh, I don't know how much I can say about what I'm doing in the annual, uh, except for that it's, I am, I am writing the full annual and getting to continue my, uh, working relationship with the very awesome Big Dog Inc. And when is and it coming out? 2014. Uh, okay. There's 12 months. Uh, there are. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to, it's the exact month, but it'll be coming out in, two, in I think, mid 2014. Okay. All right. Um, so, now we get to the point of the show where I try to get like actual real life, you know, non comic book stuff sort of out of. We can talk about other books I'm doing. We can talk about Legend of Oz, The Wicked West, and things like that. Yeah, but you know, that's already well established. Everybody knows that. Do they know that uh, it's a, the issue number twelve, the first part of my four issue story arc, is in stores now? Thirteen will be out in a few weeks. I think it's everybody like- knows because you've done eight million podcasts. <laughs> I have not talked to you about it. You haven't talked to me about it. But, no, we did. I mean, I, we knew it was coming up, and when now first, it's out. When it first got announced, I came and talked to you about it. But uh, issue 12, well, did you – I mean, you got a chance to read issue 12 by now, haven't you? Or have you not yeah. read it yet? No, I read it the night I got home. From you think? I, the night I flew home. Now, because no, it is, for people who don't know, it's about the origin of the flying monkeys, which are, like, in the book, they're actually flying gorillas. Which was kind of cool because I'm getting to write some of the scariest characters ever in pop culture. Yeah, uh, because this is why I hated The Wizard of Oz. I don't know if anybody's ever heard my story about that, but I, I, um, I can remember the, you know, the what was MGM movie or whatever the, you know, the classic movie was on, it scared the shit out of me, and um, I absolutely couldn't even look at Wizard of Oz things like when my grandmother died. And we were cleaning out the house. We found these plates. She always had, like, a lot of those collectible plates. The collector's plates. And there was a set of Wizard of Oz plates, and I couldn't, like, I didn't even want them in the house. I eBayed those things. And, uh. Some money for them. And, uh, yeah, so they were, uh, yeah, that was, that was years ago, and they went fast. <clears throat> they went fast. So, what did now, one of the things I'm trying to do with that story arc is, I mean, the only thing scarier than a flying monkey is a flying gorilla, you know. But um. But see, I had read um, I, I read a couple versions that didn't terrify me, like Scotty Young and Eric Chenowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd read like a, the first volume of that, and uh, an image had had one. Uh, I don't know what it wasn't. It didn't seem like it was from them. It was more like they were printing somebody's because it seemed 
Caliber did one years ago, and maybe I don't know if it was hooked up with that or not, but years ago Caliber did an Oz book, which Gary Reed was involved with that. It was, I remember the art was really nice. It was adorable, very cutesy art. And, um, but there were, like, there was a lot of language problems in it where I got the feeling that it, like, might have had gone through some kind of translation or something. Cause the, right. um, but anyway, so at some point there, there were versions that didn't scare me nearly as much. And then you came along and you told me that what you were writing and I'm like, oh, Jesus, God, no. So what did you, what did you think of it? Because, I, it's really a lot of it's told obviously from the from the monkey's perspective. Right. So there so there's this notion that they're probably going to be more sympathetic than you know, which is kind of what happens to um to characters like even on uh, on Once Upon a Time they make the evil queen have her moments where you feel bad for her and um I think there's versions of I never saw Wicked, but apparently the even the Wicked Witch has like some sympathetic moments. So, um, I you know I don't know if if you'll tell me, but that you can always ask. I can ask the so the gorilla's wings change. Huh? They go. They're in issue twelve. They're uh-huh. these big angelic bird-like feather wings but all of the cover images and stuff they have like bat wings like yeah in the present they have bat wings and in the flashbacks they have these big angelic feathered wings so i was wondering what that was about uh well it's it's discussed it throughout the four issues why that is but yeah now they have these big giant the wings are leathery and in all the flashbacks, they have very big angelic feathered wings, and you learn about the different tribes as you go on of the monkeys, and you learn about the winkies and the relationship with the winkies. The winkies in the movie were like the real soldiers, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I-, I can tell you in the next three issues, um, and like I said, my first issue is issue 12, and it's a perfect jumping on point, too. Uh, issue uh, 12 is the return of Dorothy to the book. She's now the new witch of the West and the witch of the East because she killed both of those witches. And uh, spoiler, I know, but, you know. And uh, so now she is back uh, in the book as the witch, and she's trying to figure out what to do with this army of flying gorillas that she has, and she wants to know where the hell they came from and stuff. Um, why do the gorillas have a, uh, feathered wings before and leather-bound wings now? will be revealed. Uh, I, I, I can't give it away in good conscience, but it is a plot point that is discussed. Uh, it's not just to, to help disseminate between um, flashback and, and modern. Okay. It, is, it, is, it is a plot point. Okay. And uh, I've been telling everybody, even if you've never read Legend of Oz The Wicked West before, issue 12 was like a perfect jumping on point. Get issue 12. Just check it out, you know. Uh, Allison did a, he did a really great cover. Niai or Rafino did a really cool cover with just like the big monkey like yelling at you on the cover and, um. Yeah, the covers uh, are really beautiful. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That was good, so. So they, but the other thing that I have about, about the story, and I know uh, that this is sort of, I think this is, you know, getting carryover from the, the source material, is that, uh, whoever has the golden crown can, yes. like, issue like three commands to the monkeys uh-huh. um so i don't understand why the monkeys are obedient in between the wishes or commands whatever you want to call them uh like, you will 
Yeah, you're, you're exactly. Like knowing that there's only three, and this is this is actually from the the books. Uh, uh, I did a lot of research into the books. Like I didn't know like if the monkeys actually had a real origin or not. So I went back to the source material and you know started doing research on that, and found out that there is very there's some very specific but very limited details about their origin, and I've remained faithful to all of it. Uh, the actual way that the original Wicked Witch uh, gets control of the monkeys and how it happens uh, is detailed. Right, It's right in the book, you know, um, with uh, Gaylat and stuff getting thrown, you know, and her fiancé getting thrown in the river, and, you know, she creates the golden cap to control the, the monkeys. That's all, that's all in my story arc. Um... But you raise a very valid point. It's one that I was kind of had to wrestle with. I'm like, knowing that the person that has the golden cap can only inflict three wishes upon the monkeys, why don't they just go ape, no pun intended, and just revolt real quick and just take it and be free? What is it that, why, you know, what what power do they have over them knowing that they only have three wishes? Uh and that's definitely also something that's going to be explored in lieu of the original Wicked Witch as well as Dorothy and what she, you know, what her decision is going to be concerning uh, this army of monkeys she has at her command. All right. So, that, so was, 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 uh, that was something that I had to think about at length, you know. But really when you think about it, like if I said to you, I've got this golden uh, cap and uh, I, I could control you with... Uh, Three wishes. Sir <gasps> Manning, what would you do if you controlled me with three wishes? Uh, to be continued. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, the big question is, how do you utilize, you know, it's kind of like the Aladdin and the Lamp scenario. How do you utilize those three wishes to maintain permanent control over someone without saying, you know, uh, you have to uh, obey me for, I mean, do you make a wish you obey me forever? Or what do you do? You know, it, there there are limits on any magic. You know, when, when magic becomes infinite, uh, it's no longer fun. And, and I haven't clearly delineated that, but but it's not like an infinite magic. Rather, that what, what the Golden Cap does in Legend of Oz Wicked West, you can t- command the monkeys three times. And like you said, other than that, they're kind of free to do what they want. But that sort of Damocles is hanging over their head. And why is it that they don't just say, screw off, and even make, them, make, make the owner of the Golden Cap burn off the wishes three times real quick, the three commands? Uh, that's all laid out as the book goes on. Throughout, those four, throughout the four issues, that'll, that'll definitely be discussed. So Okay, so while, um, while I have you here, and we always talk about Stuff about life and what goes on in the world. I can't find any. I can't find other ways to avoid this by talking about it. What, what other books am I doing right now? Ah, no. About the role playing game. We talked about Oz. We talked about V. Uh, we talked about Ursa Minor. Uh, yeah, I think right we covered. Wrong. I think we covered work pretty well. But I mean, I have questions that are related to work. Right or wrong is going to be coming back pretty soon at Bleeding Cool. I'm pretty excited about that. I had to kind of go on a mini hiatus with this uh, tour, but I'll be getting back to that regularly. And, you know, the book's still doing well. And, you know, that's not working, is it? So, no, no, no. We're getting through this. We're, we're moving on. Right. Stick back. Go back to your notes. Okay. There, yeah, because there, um, 
I mean, but it's related to work in a way. Um, right. The we were talking about Clockwork Empire RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, so was this a, your first experience writing for games? Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, what I'm doing with both Clockwork Empire, honestly. Is more of a um, I'm doing prose writing. So you're uh, doing I'm like with, a sidebar, like it's not. Uh, the stuff I'm doing kind of ties into it a little bit. Um, a lot of world building stuff, I guess, is the uh, the technical term for it. Um, I, I met uh, I met Zeke, and then later I met Than. At um, actually, I met Zeke at a comic signing, and uh, I was talking about Nightmare World, and uh, he was just really enthralled with the idea of how. Nightmare World mixes all these different mythologies and things like that, you know, the Judeo-Christian stuff and, 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 maybe, and you know, uh, uh, supernatural and fairy stuff. I mean, Nightmare World, obviously, I mean, eventually we get into aliens in this series, we cover everything. And it's this really nice jambalaya. And he thought that was really cool. And he especially liked the, the mixing of the, the uh, Lovecraft mythos stuff with the Judeo-Christian stuff, which are two mythologies that genuinely, generally speaking, don't really mix. And we started talking, things like that. And what ended up happening was um, I'm doing a lot of uh, prose stories and a lot of prose writing uh, that's kind of world-building for the whole uh, universe. So that's kind of what I'm doing with that. Um, I've, You know, people ask me all the time, you know, they're like, well, why don't you write book books or why don't you write prose? And... I mean, I can. I'm fully capable, and I've done it. I've, you know, I did it for a year. I did journalism for years, and even when I did music journalism stuff like that, I was always most interested in telling the story. You know, um, my you can I think appreciate this. My my interview technique. Um, it's one of the many reasons that we're related, I guess. Uh, my interview technique was let's just sit down and talk. You know, right. not dr- not drilling not drilling kill with questions. You know, and and as a result, I would. Um, end up talking to, like, uh, insane clown posse uh, about uh, their life in school and stuff that they went through and what did they do when they got a million dollars, when they got that million-dollar signing bonus after Disney dropped them, or talking to Kid Rock about uh, education and his life coming up, and, you know, and things like that, you know, and, and his business practices. So I, I think that stuff is uh, infinitely more... Uh, uh, interesting than uh, actually the drill and kill stuff, but um, so to me, when I did music journalism, point being, it was always about telling the story, and I have written prose fiction on a very limited degree. Every Nightmare World collection, I do. I always did a two-page prose story at the end of every book, and in Tales of Mystery, I'm doing a prose story that might actually run a little bit longer than two pages. It might be several pages. Someone bought the. Uh, Bought the right to kind of name the story that would inspire to, na- to, to pick a song that would pick inspire. a song, right? You picked lyrics or a song title or something, and you were going to make yeah. it into a story. Yeah. And Red Thompson, actually from the Outhouse, uh, the Outhousers, um, was uh, he actually was the one that bought that, and uh, he picked a a challenging song title. Because um, well, I know, because you said that it would be even if it was Britney Spears, you would do it. Would and he picked the song by. Um, uh, Sublime called uh, AM Radio. I guess here's another exclusive because I haven't been on the show in a while. Um, he, which was tough for me because you know it's it's an open secret that every all the Nightmare World stories and all the Tales of Mystery stories 
every chapter is named after, or, or the title of every story is inspired by a song title. And, uh, you know, whether it be like Procreation of the Wicked or, uh, I don't want to give away too many of the other titles, I guess. Like The Gentle Art of Making Enemies by your friend uh, Mike Patton from Faith No More. Um, <laughs> yeah, we go right back. Yeah. Uh, song titles that you will. Uh, that, that have a lot of emotional resonance with me. And then uh, I haven't even told Brad this yet, I don't think. But I said, uh, man, AM radio. I'm like, that's a, a freaking noun, man. Damn it. Like, what am I going to, you know, I, I, I literally, I, I went into this with no preconceived notions of like, it's not like I got a story in mind and they can name it and I'll make it work. He tells me the title and I would write a story. And AM radio, and I'm like, damn. It's like a prompt, though. That's awesome. It was, and that was the point. That was the point. And, and I and, and I talked to Brad, and uh, he said, you know, "Can I be a character in the story?" And I said, uh, "said absolutely. You know that that that's totally doable." Um, you know, I was like, "I got team up with mystery or something," and I'm like, "Well, team up or get killed by or <laughs> do something." And uh, I don't want to give away too much about the story, but. I'm really happy with now the the direction the story is taking and, and how it's how it's playing out. Um, the first line of the story, this is a treat for people that I guess have uh, listened this long, is um, something along the lines of uh, mystery. Uh, did you know mystery never liked music? And that's how it starts. Uh, this is actually re- something that I wanted to talk to you about. So we're going to get back to things about the first lines of stories. But keep okay. going. Keep going. Okay, but yeah, but that line, mystery does you know, mystery, you know, doesn't like never liked music or didn't like music. Or mystery doesn't like music. It really speaks volumes about the character because like I was talking about this earlier, I mean people are getting mystery tattooed on their flesh for God's sake, you know, I mean people have a real connection to that character and he's a he's a fat he's just a really cool character because like what what's neat about that first volume, the Procreation of the Wicked in previews now, Diamond Staff pick, holler, is, um, I'm just so giddy about that. I'm sorry. I know, that's awesome. Is I, uh, but, I saw the full page, full page thing, it's great. Page, like in the front of the book, the back of the book, the middle, you name it. Uh, the only thing I have left now is Gem of the Month. We'll get there with volume two. Um, no pressure, Seth. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he starts, when you start reading Tales of Mystery, for people that haven't read it online, um, he, it, it starts very, like, almost stereotypical, badass, cryptic, paranormal, troubleshooter guy. And then you get to chapter two, and that's it, you know. He's like shaft for, like, the boo crowd, you know. Yeah. Then you get to chapter two, and you have the interactions with, uh, a, a character, a vampire, in Chapter 2. And things play out very differently than people probably would expect based on the nature of the story and the nature of the character. And then you get to Chapter 3. And I'm not going to do this for all 13 chapters, I promise. Uh, that would ruin the book. But you get to Chapter 3, and then you meet uh, his brother, Mystery's brother. And you learn more about him. And that's when you really start to learn more about his... Uh, Backstory and, and things like that, and his kind of family dynamic, um, and, and on and on it goes. 
And one of the things I wanted to do with this book, because people always ask me in Nightmare World, they're like, well, you can write something longer. Because, you know, you get in. I always start the Nightmare World stories in, like, at least the third act early. Sometimes the middle of the third act, you know. Boom, boom, in and out. My life. (laughs) And uh, you really get to kind of see the, the complexities of this character as he unfolds and really becomes this very fully realized, very complex, very tragic and ultimately very flawed character, you know. And when 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 Brad, and I hope he doesn't mind me putting him out there, that he's the one that, that prompted all this, gave me the title AM Radio, I, um, you know, I kind of realized, you know, I was thinking about reading him, like, well, he, he and I don't want to give away why, but he he's had a life that he never would have got a chance to experience really a lot of music in his life. Uh, not in the way a lot of people, a lot of us discover music when we're teenagers and really start getting into it. Uh, he was not afforded that opportunity. And as a result, he's this guy that just doesn't like music. And he listens to AM radio, which is talk radio, because he likes to learn things. And he, like, he has a very specific reason for listening to the radio that he does on the time. And he reads books and... Uh, it's like, what does it, what does it say about someone that doesn't like music? Period. Well, that's Re. That's the type of person Re is now. He, he just is not. He has no need for it. He has no need for it. You know. Um, it's funny. I was talking to my uh, editor and uh, going through and editing the, you know, proofreading the dialogue, editing stuff for me, and made a note about a line of dialogue. And went back and said, you know, no, never mind, because Re wouldn't, Re wouldn't even have time for an extra syllable. And I'm like, well, exactly, that's exactly right. You get it. He just, he's a very guarded, very guarded. He's very, very, very private. You know, uh, he's probably one of the most, the most least sharing people you could ever meet. Oh yeah, I don't know anybody like that. <laughs> He has everything but wear a mask in his picture to cover his face. Um, and, and he even, being a magician or a sorcerer or whatever you want to call him, he even realizes the, the power in words and how much power words have. And as a result, he uses very few of them. Uh, because by learning the way people talk and by hearing people talk is how you learn about who they are and what they are, and what they stand for. And he, he's just a character that's wound so tight. He's like a uber, uber, tightly clenched fist. And anybody that's anybody knows you cannot clench a fist forever. And what starts to happen when finally... Uh, even have total resolute willpower, you know, to be able to, to be that that just constricted for that long. And what if rather than your fear of letting go, rather than letting go, you dig in tighter and like almost if you start to break your own fingers even and what goes from there and how much damage you do to yourself. And when you start to open up and what if you open up to the wrong people and what happened? You know, so anyway, that that's that's the character, and, and that's something that's going to be explored, maybe not overtly in uh, the pro story, but that actually is more more uh, discussed more in the actual, that's kind of, I guess, the theme of the actual book. 
So then, um, you know, if this were if this were Hollywood, Ree would need a romantic angle. He would he would need a uh, you know rescue a damsel and fall in love story. For sure. Um, there I mean, is that does come up in chapter. Well, I'm not going to say what chapter. There is a point when Ree meets uh, a woman, and her name is Charity, and she's with an organization called the Promise Group. And uh, the Promise Group, Promise stands for Permanent Reduction of Monsters in Society Everywhere. Check that out. That was like my final. Is like uh, the whole series was the Promise Group. Coming up, coming up with an acronym. Acronym, uh, the Promise Group. But I mean, it's, it's always it's, it's, it's the Promise Group, and you can tell if someone's in the Promise Group because they wear a promise ring. Yes, <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. Um, and they wear the Promise Ring. Um, and she, she's a cool character. Uh, I'm trying to decide how much I want to say for people because people haven't read the book yet. I can say a little bit, I guess. And she meets Ree, and here you have someone that's part of this group, that's part of the Promise Group, part of this organization, and is fairly well adjusted. And then you have Ree, who's this guy who does it alone and uh, does everything alone, and he has very valid reasons for, in his mind for being so alone and not letting people in and not talking to people. And, and throughout the story, we see part of it. We see some of those reasons. So here you have someone that's like, wow, you do this by yourself? What the hell are you thinking? And this 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 uh, uh, contrast between this, this woman that's, that's part of an organization and much better adjusted despite doing the same line of work versus Re, who is this very, I don't want to say broken, but very tightly wound, non-trusting, reclusive, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, cipher-like character. And uh, you, we do we do see that dichotomy um, between Re and Charity. Um, that's something I'm sure Hollywood would have fun with. And I will say every single thing in every single story in all 13 chapters, and even in the pro story uh, of Tales of Mystery, is there for a reason. There's a big, big story I want to tell with Re that's going to go over many, many volumes. And the groundwork for a, almost everything in the whole series is in those first 13 chapters. Um, so characters like Charity and characters like the Promise Group and uh, Thelma Lushkin and William from Nightmare World and some other things like that. All of that, it, it all lays the groundwork for things later, you know. Um, okay. So, so, romantic okay. angle? Mm, wait and see. Oh, all right. I'll wait and see. Now, um, but I wanted to tie this back together with the the fact that you know you've now had an, an introduction into gaming. Is uh, you know, is there a chance that you've had the the bug to change and expand the media of either Nightmare World or Tesmachery and make like some sort of game or otherwise interactive uh, component. I've thought about doing some interactive music style stuff with some of the projects, but game stuff, I mean, uh, 
I, I would definitely not be opposed to it, but you know, it, it's a it's a it's a rights issue more than anything. You know, um, who has the rights to what and things like that. Ree's going to be making actually a small appearance in another comic book. You know, and it's one of those things. Even stuff like that, you got to make sure who owns what. Blah blah blah. If it gets reprinted here, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, do do does my team get royalties based on the fact that Ree was in five pages of this other comic or whatever, or or if that other comic gets reprinted? You know, there's an issue like this with Robert Kirkman with. Um, the invincible, uh, Mar- invincible appearing into a Spider-Man in the Marvel team-up uh, thing they did, you know, and uh, you know, things like that. Uh, a re-game, a Tales of Mystery game, or a Nightmare World game, or uh, I, I, I'm not opposed to it. It'd be cool, but I'm a guy that mainly focuses on the comics. Honestly, uh, how does it serve the comics? You know, uh, whether it be. Uh, you know, options for a television show or uh, movies or whatever. My first interest is um, me putting out the comics. And, you know, as I talked about in the show before, I kind of had to I hit a little bit of a, a lull there due to some things in my life um, where I wasn't producing as much new stuff as I wanted. My plan kind of got sidetracked a little bit when I had that concussion. So... Uh, I'm kind of making up for lost time now and mainly just continuing to focus on, on comic work right now. And if that other stuff comes about, it comes about cool. But, I, you know, we got Revolume 1 coming out. Revolume 2 is already um, on the books. When we when, uh, we have a plan for that, uh, maybe even Volume 3. Um, I, know there, I know people are clamming for one last Nightmare World book. I've got the Big Dog Inc. stuff going on. I've got some other pitches going on and things like that that I want to develop. So So, since you've got, I mean, I know that you've you've got a a level of commitment with those particular, like your particular properties. Um, And they're anthologies because you have different artists all the time. But do you ever, ever consider letting another writer play in your pond? Hmm. There is um, now. I'll, I'll tell. I'll, I'll explain it this way. It would have to happen under very special circumstances. You know, um, I look at it in a way that you know, if someone hires Dirk Manning, let me be Dirk Manning. And by all means, I tell every editor I ever worked with, like Tom over at Big Dog Inc. and Kim and things like that, I'm like you're the captain of the ship. Okay. Ultimately, it's your call. Uh, but hire me to be me. Don't hire me to be someone else. Um, Jim Reddington, who letters almost everything I do, he, he's such a funny guy. I, he, I, I mean that literally in the sense that the, the concepts and stuff he comes up with are just freaking hilarious. I mean, uh, he's like, I've got an idea. I'm like, shut up! Shut up! Because it's like these mind worms he puts in my brain. And I'm like, I don't want to know about it! He's like, what if we did this? What like, no! Because it, it just roots in my brain. And, and one of the things he's always joked about is uh, doing, a, doing a one-shot or a story called um, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Okay, of course. 3000, right, because why not? You know, mystery. It still surprises me. Until people hear it, I mean, people don't get the, the gag. Mystery is his name. Right. Yeah. 
it's not as obviously, but that's the name he uses. But um, and he told me the idea for this mystery three thousand. And I kept like, it's so funny. And it's so good. And he tells me, and I'm like, don't tell me! And he just doesn't listen. And I'm like, shut up! And he starts talking over me. And he plants the seed. I'm like, oh, God, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And, oh, I mean, it's just it's just freaking hilarious, man. It's, it's it, you know, um, I know Jim well enough that it would be something where I can see someday in a project, him and I, you know, I would, he'd be credited as, like, you know, uh, the sto- the co-story credit or something like that. Um, but I've known Jim for too long, I'm sure, in his eyes. Um, we've worked together over a decade, <laughs> you know. Uh, not a week goes by that we don't talk because we're always working on stuff together, you know. Um, but as for, like, someone else coming in and writing, like, Nightmare World, for example, no, that's my baby. You know, people can make their own Nightmare World. Um, now, if someone wants to option it for television or something, um, obviously, kind of like you see in a Walking Dead show, for example, you know, screenwriters come in and stuff like that, and they would do their thing, and that's the cost of doing business, you know. Um, someone else writing Re? Again, I, I find that unlikely. I think it'd be more like a situation, um, kind of like Mike, what Mike Mignola did, like, for example, when they did the Hellboy Savage Dragon team up. Uh, Eric Larson wrote the story, but then Mignola went in and wrote the dialogue bits for for Hellboy. Um, the mystery cameo in this upcoming book we're doing, uh, the other writer and I are kind of discussing what the scenario is going to be and kind of hashing out right now how we're going to do it. Like, if I actually kind of write the scene, you know, or, or what. But I'm pretty um, I'm pretty protective about that stuff, you know. I mean... I'm, I'm, I'm glad, me, I'm flattered that people like the characters, but uh, it takes some pretty exceptional circumstances for me to hand them off to someone else to play with them. Um, I didn't write these characters to be, I didn't create these characters to be uh, corporate uh, intellectual properties. They're my characters. It's like, oh, uh, would Nathaniel Hawthorne let someone else write uh, the continuing adventures of uh, Esther Prynne or something like that? You know, uh, Star Letter uh, uh, or Hester Prynne? You know, uh, no, no, it, it's his character. You know, Hester Prynne is his. You know, uh, so well after you're dead, though, it may happen because that's what happens. Well, Disney's doing something right now. They're trying to extend the copyright to 95 years. And, and and by all means, I mean, to be fair, I do a lot of stuff with Lovecraft's mythology stuff. But then again, Lovecraft encouraged it. He wanted people to write mythos stories. He thought it was great, man. He's like, yeah, man, play around with Cthulhu, Kulu. Play around with all these characters, you know. Uh, so I don't feel as bad about that, you know, because he actively encouraged it in his letters and stuff. He got a kick out of it. Um if someone wanted to tell a story with my version of uh, Lilith from Nightmare World, who was a very minor character in the scheme of things, or a Thelma Lushkin, or a Brian Carter, or or a Mr. Ree, um, I don't know. That's not something I'm overly excited about at this point in my career. Okay. I just figured I'd ask. Um, because, I mean, it was just because of the anthology thing and, and uh, the fact that... Uh, 
you have written for other anthologies, though. I just yeah wondered uh, yeah. wondered about the what if there, you know, like. Uh, but that's okay. It's uh. People ask. Yeah, people ask even back in the day. Hey, can I write a Nightmare World story? And I'm, and I always have to say no. Yeah. We'll get pissed off, and I actually lost some readers that way because they were mad at me because they couldn't write one, and I'm like. Just because it's written like an anthology doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. There is a big picture here. There is a big plan. This is my book. This is my series. I'm doing something with this. And uh, I, I tell writers all the time, they're like, well, can I get your opinion on on uh, my story that I'm writing? And I say, once you publish it, I will gladly give you my opinion. They're like, well, how do I know if it's good? And I'm like, do you believe in it? Then write it. Then figure it out. You know, then it doesn't matter. Well, who the hell am I? It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Who the hell is anybody, man? You know, uh, I had so many people back in the day, and I've said this before, and I know I always go back to this, but it's just, I think it's such a powerful message. Why are you writing a horror anthology-style book? This was back in 2002. No one likes horror. No one likes anthologies. And I landed an image. I landed an image. And, and say what you will, whether that book sold five copies or a million copies, uh, I, I got it there. And a lot of those same people that were talking shit are still where they are, and now I'm where I am. So you know what? Don't don't try to chase the dollar. You believe in your project, do it. Don't try to do what you think people are gonna like. If you want to tell a story about a guy who has a toaster for a head, do it. You know, do what you want to do. Don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry about asking other people's opinion. I don't ask other people's opinion. I get. I, and sometimes to my detriment, I, it's like here's what I want to do. Here it is. Do you like it or not? Or do we have to clean it up or at all? Whatever. But I'm not one to to brainstorm projects with people, you know. Uh, uh, which again, maybe maybe it's to my detriment. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Well, I want to get back to that when I was talking about the uh, uh, first line of a story, um, because you you happen to be talking about one. But that's actually like one of the questions in my notes for you is because I was reading an interview with Stephen King on TheAtlantic.com. It was, uh, it came out after his book Joyland came out, and he spoke about the first line of it. And what he says is, uh, there's one thing I'm sure about, an opening line should invite the reader to begin a story. It should say, listen, come in here, you want to know about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have a two-part question, which is, what is your favorite opening line? I personally know the answer, but I'm asking asking you anyway. And the second is, what do you think your best opening line is that you ever wrote? My favorite opening line of all time uh, was Anthem by Ayn Rand. Uh, it is a sin to write this. Uh, God damn, what a powerful line. <laughs> it is a sin to write this. I'm like, I will read this whole book in one sitting. I don't care how crazy she is, because that's a great opening line. Um, or how crazy she's perceived to be, and, and et cetera. Um, that is hands down my uh, my favorite opening line of a book ever. Did you know? Did you know that was it? Yes, I knew that was it. Okay. Um, line. Uh, the favorite opening line I wrote. <sighs> See, it's tough because of what I do. I really like the opening line in uh, my first issue of Legend of Oz number twelve. When uh, the first page after Dorothy hasn't been in the book for a year, you open the cover and there's Dorothy as in the Witch of the West, and she says, uh, 
she's looking in her kind of the crystal ball that the Wicked Witch had, and she's kind of holding her head and kind of trying to do this kind of spell thing and doing something. And she's very frustrated, and she says, you know, why won't you listen, or why aren't you listening? And that's a theme that's kind of prevalent throughout my story arc. Um, I like that one. And I also like, I think, the opening line of the first pro story I did in the first uh, Nightmare World anthology. Uh, the pro story at the back was called uh, uh, Long Hard Road Out of Hell, and it's about um, uh, Lucifer. And the story is Lucifer in hell and planning all the events that are going to uh, that unfold over the length of Nightmare World, the whole life series. And he's looking at his hand. And he's looking at his hand, and when he looks at his hand, he sees a, uh, a pentagram. And he starts thinking about a pentagram. He's looking at his hand, and he starts thinking about a pentagram. And he starts thinking about the five pieces in chess. And you really see how Lucifer's mind works and how the most intelligent people in the world are, are not the ones that have read a lot of books per se. Uh, they're not the ones that think exceptionally fast. They're not the ones that even know people very well. They're the ones that can draw connections, I think, between unrelated things. And uh, that opening line in that story, which I'll encourage people to check out the trade paperback uh, to, to, to discover it because it's not available online anywhere. Um, but that short story about, and someone just complimented me on it recently the other day, which I was really, I got this really nice letter about it. Um, that very story about Lucifer looking at his hand and seeing a pentagram and seeing that that's the, the symbol that's ascribed to him. And looking at his hand and thinking of the pentagram and thinking of the five pieces in chess and how that literally he develops this whole plan of how to move all these chess pieces in place to kickstart the uh, the second war with heaven and kickstart the Armageddon and bring in Cthulhu and bring in Lilith and bring in her army and bring in the sons of Lilith and bring in the sons of God and bring in Cthulhu. And that's probably my other favorite opening line of a story is from that story. Cool. Um, it, what's, uh, what's funny is that, um, uh, my, if I had to pick a favorite opening line, it actually is from a book that I haven't read yet. And it's because on Amazon you can preview like, you know, certain number of pages or whatever for, uh, for, for certain things. And, um, so it's actually my friend Dwayne Swarzynski's book, The Blonde. Uh, the opening line is, I poisoned your drink. It's a, it's a short bit of dialogue that this woman in an airport says, I poisoned your drink. And, um, and because I had read that, that little bit of it one time when we were, you know, meeting for, for drinks after a signing or something like that, that was the, like the first thing I said to him when I, you know, put the scotch down on the table. I was like, don't worry, I didn't poison your drink. <laughs> I, it, it's a funny thing, you know, at shows and conventions and stuff. You know, I did, like I said, I did music journalism for years, and I, I spent a lot of time in bars, and I I saw a lot of things happen to uh, to a lot of people with drinks one way or the other. And, you know, one of my rules was always, you know, you always hold your drink, you know, with your hand covering the top of the drink, and especially because I don't drink. Uh, you know, I, I, at the time I even just drank pop, or what you would call soda. Soda, yes. That's what we this, call it. 
odor that you speak of. Um, and I would always hold my drinks with um, my hand over the top of the glass. And if I ever put my drink down for a second, it was done. I would just get another drink. Um, I actually had to um, sit with a, 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 a young woman. I, didn't, I, never, I don't know her. I never learned her name, never knew anything about her, but who actually, um, you know, someone roofied her and was trying to take her home, and I had to kind of step in because something obviously wasn't right with the scenario and uh, help her call her dad. Um, this is before cell phones. <laughs> yeah, use the pay phone, call her dad, and try to explain, uh, sir, your uh, your daughter's at this bar, and she's really screwed up and needs someone to take her home. And So, um, yeah. Anyway, a little aside. A little aside. A little aside about that. Yeah, I always hold, you always know, I always hold my drinks with my hand over the top. I've seen too much crazy shit happen. It's not a challenge for people to do something stupid because uh, I have a long, long memory and I hold a really ugly grudge, but it's just one of those things. You just got to be careful about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I know very well. Um. And I, I know that your favorite, uh, or maybe one of your favorites, I don't know if he's the favorite, your favorite uh, writer is Harlan Ellison, right? Harlan. Harlan Ellison. He's, he, I, he's way up. Joe Hill's been gaining a lot of ground, but man, Harlan is, yeah, Harlan's just a... So, um, but one of the things is, you know, we obviously can't agree with 100% of what somebody says, even when they're like a hero to us. And... Um, so I found his stance on giving away work for free to be the exact opposite of your own journey in publishing. And he said, that his quote was, I think any writer who gives away his work demeans himself, demeans the craft, demeans the art, and demeans the buyer. It is, uh, you know, and he goes on and on. And it's like, I don't mean to be crude when I say this, but I won't take a piss unless I'm paid properly. <laughs> and I... Yeah. Uh, so he he apparently is like really good friends with Neil Gaiman, and Neil Gaiman ha- is is the opposite. He you know sort of encourages piracy in a way because he believes that it'll eventually bring money in. Um, and you had offered your you know your work for free, and a lot of people do in comics. They they offer the work up online for free, and then you you know people buy the the paperbacks. Right. Um, yeah, Harlan, I've met Harlan a couple times, and Harlan actually personally gave me some of the best advice I've ever heard ever. Um, to me personally about myself. Uh, but like he said, he goes, yeah, I won't take a piss while I get paid for it. And he even says very, very openly, he says, um, he goes, uh, I will sell my soul, but only for the poss- for the highest possible premiums, <laughs> you know, the highest possible. Uh, but he comes from a different time and a different era, too, you know. Uh, I mean, Harlan Ellison's a guy that, that literally uh, sued AOL, proper the, the institution because someone was hosting a website where they were publishing they were what they were doing was they they basically typed up or what have you his stories and put them online and he said I'm not getting paid for that take it down and the guy wouldn't the kid wouldn't take the stories down or whatever so he sued AOL for allowing them to steal his stuff and put it online and he almost went bankrupt doing that I mean, so Harlan Ellison literally almost went bankrupt suing AOL just on the principle of the matter. That's the way he is. Uh, he's a very feisty guy, just to put it mildly, and, and he lives and dies on his principles, which I respect the hell out of that. But it is. It's an area where we agree to disagree. Would I be 
richer or more well-to-do or better off if I never published my work online for free? I don't think so. I think it served me very well. But yeah, no, I think it was, you know, it, it was a way to market. I always use the same, I'm sure I've talked about this on your show before, that I, I use this example, you know. You and I put out a book. Uh, I put my book online for free. Uh, you know, I, I serialize it. I invite people every week to come out, check out more of it online, build it as an online brand, and then release a print edition where there's like exclusives and extras and bonus materials and things like that. You put all the time and effort into making a comic, you and your art team. Don't show it off at all online. And then we both go to a convention and we are, uh, across an aisle from each other. And, uh, who sells more books? People might come by my table and say, oh, I've heard of, I've heard of, you know, Dirk's book. I've heard of your book. And I've heard of that. Yeah. I've read some of that online. I wanted to buy, you know, have a nice edition of that. And you'll sit there with your book and no one knows about it. No one's heard of it. And it'll be based on the strength of your pitch. Well, I've got a pitch and exposure. No, again, ultimately, there's other factors involved and what people like and how well we present the material and things like that. But, but the bottom line is I, I firmly believe people are more likely to buy something if they know what it is, you know, and know about it uh, in, the, in the scheme of things. So, Well, you, you also you mentioned, uh, you know, touching upon uh, Harlan Ellison's um Moral code, if you will. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize he was actually he was a civil rights activist and stuff, and um, he believes that part of the job of the writer is to upset the contented masses. And I was wondering if you agree with that, or you know, if there's a if you have causes that you champion as well. Obviously, you did something heroic for a young lady in a bar. So I mean, on you know, on that sort of scale, you, you know, you have things to champion, but um, yeah. is it the job of the writer to do that, or is it just the job of a human being to do that? Hmm. I, uh, I do a lot of good for a lot of people in a lot of ways, and I don't talk about it because I'm not the type of person that wants or needs or wants <laughs> the, the alkylates for it. You know, I believe in doing good things for people because it's the right thing to do. You know, I do a lot of volunteer work. I, I, I do a lot of volunteer work for a lot of people um, that maybe have uh, difficulties uh, perhaps advocating for themselves properly, for example. I don't put that shit out there because it doesn't matter. You know, I don't do it so people say, oh, my gosh, Dirk, you're such a nice person, or you did that, or you helped an old lady across the street, or you uh, opened the door for a person in a wheelchair or whatever. Yeah, I do it because I want to do it. I think it's important to do. Um, I I think my write a wrong column, my write a wrong book, you know, and and stuff like that is an example of championing a cause. Um, that's probably my biggest one. Um, I don't know if I do so much in my, my, my fiction writing. Um, I don't like to get too preachy in it. I, I guess the, in my fiction work, the way I get preachy is just, you know, maybe talking about the world the way I see it or maybe the way my characters would see it. You know, do I see the world the way Mr. Reed does? Uh, do I see it the way Lucifer does? Uh, I don't know, maybe. I'm not telling. <laughs> you know, uh, that would destroy the mystique of the process. Uh, but my 
my my my my cause. You know, I, I vowed I was like the little boy in the Chef Boyardee commercials from years ago. Someday, if I ever get a chance to make a comics, I will help everybody. You know, that's my cause. You know, that's my damn. You know, uh, I always said, you know, and I talk about this in Right or Wrong book, uh, Right or Wrong, A Writer's Guide to Creating Comics, which is available on Amazon. Plug, cheap plug. Don't edit that out, please. Um, I could, I could, but I won't. With a snap of my finger. No. I have the uh, power here. That's that's a true story. But uh, that, that, you know, I said I would do everything I could to help anybody out that would be interested in making comics. And I tell this story all the time, and I apologize if I've told it on your show before, but people come up to me sometimes and they'll say, well, gee, Dirk, you know, I read right or wrong, and, you know, I mean, this happened at Fanfare. I think you were miraculous, always miraculously doing other things or talking to other people. I, I go to Fanfare. Every year this has happened, man, and I just, I, I'm almost here now talking about it, honestly. You know, uh, people come up to my table at shows and say, you know, I attended your panel last year. I bought your book last year. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. You know, I remember talking to you. <laughs> and then they say, you know, well, this year I'm set up here and I made a comic. Yeah, you showed and, me the one book. Yeah. That somebody brought over. Yeah. It just chokes me up, man. You know, it, it's such a a powerful thing. You know, that I can help other people out, you know, with their dreams of making comics. And people will say to me sometimes, you know, aren't you afraid you're, you're feeding competition? And I'm like, no, there's no competition. And then, and people come look at me like, oh, fucking check out the big balls on Brad. You know, and I have to explain. I'm like, you know, there's only one Dirk Manning. I write the books I'm going to write. You write the books you're going to write. I'm not jostling to write Spider-Man. I'm not injured. You know, that's, that's not my career aspiration. Uh, and even if you and I were both jostling to write Batman, for example, we're both going to have a wildly different take on it, and ultimately it's up to the editor to decide whose take he wants or she wants. Um, I, I give this analogy. If you have a room full of writers and someone comes in and says, okay, write a story about... If all the dogs in the world could talk, and there's 20 writers in the room, you're going to have 20 different stories. So if I do the things, through right or wrong, to help people get the chance to make comics, how do you build a team? I mean, making comics, unless you can draw and write yourself, which is a very small minority of people that can do it as well as they can to a professional standard... You know, it's about building teams. It's about building those professional relationships. And it's about managing your team and, and working with your partners and, and things like that. And, and that's a part of it that so many people don't understand when they go into it. And the first writer on book talks about that at length. Build your team. Build your network. Build your relationships. Work with other people. Enjoy the collaborative process of it. Uh, I'm not feeding competition. I'm making it so that other people can make great comics I can read. That's my cause. That's you know, a good cause. That's, you know. Isn't, I, I think, you know, sometimes I think it overshadows my comic book writing because I write such niche stuff, you know. I write mainly, my career to date has mainly been horror comics. Uh, Legend of Oz is me breaking out of that mold a little bit. Um, you know, I did the story in Dias de la Mortis with uh, Riley that I think showed that, you know, a quote-unquote different side of what I do, although I think it's all part of the same side. 
and I've done some other projects that are not horror. Um, and I have some comics I'm working on now that aren't horror, but the Night of Tales of Mr. Reed, which is really dark, you know, like horror noir, you know. Um, so sometimes I think that cause of mine, I'm known, I, I think in many circles I'm known more as the right or wrong guy than the Nightmare World guy. Uh, or the comic writing, which is good. But I, I'm known more as the uh, right or wrong guy than the comic book writing guy, which I think is something that um, I, there's worse problems to have. You know, there's definitely worse problems to have than that. Because you're known. That's all that matters. Sure. And hopefully not infamously, but there's probably a little of that, too. In certain circles, there's certain people that say certain things, but anybody that knows me on any level knows the type of person I am. You know, it's pretty, pretty, uh, despite being reclusive, I'm very transparent in my reclusiveness. So I think anyone that's had more than a 10-second conversation with me knows the type of person I am at my core. So, So, um, before you were talking about, you know, the, like the, the, the perspective of the characters like Lucifer and Mystery and how they are perhaps examining life and stuff. And yeah, tis the season, we're recording this in November, so it's now tis the season for holidays and all that stuff. And this generally is when people suddenly become spiritual when they weren't all year. Um, so, uh, you know, but people start thinking about loved ones and life and faith. And uh, so... I, it's a big question, but it could have a simple answer. I don't know. I was just wondering, what do you have faith in? Hmm. I mean, besides the fact that I have the best show ever, I know that that's... You know that. Um, I have faith in hunger. I guess is probably the best way to, to explain it. I always tell people the, the most important trait in any aspect of life is hunger. You know, all people can be boiled down to two very simple characteristics. Some people argue it's three. I argue it's two. And I'm, and I'm not the first one to make this analysis, but I, but I definitely regurgitate it. What do you want? And what are you willing to do to get it? You know... Uh, that's people. And over this 13-week signing tour I've been doing, uh, I, I, I went to, uh, back to my roots, back to grounds, uh, you know, to, you know, by, uh, Toledo, Ohio. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time by Toledo and Detroit growing up. And, um, at the comic shop I did there, I set up all my books I've ever done. I had a copy of every comic I've ever done on the table. And I had about 11 books up there. And it just wrecked me. And I'm like, I always take, one of my old things I always do is anytime I go to a show, I always take a picture of the table. You know, so it's kind of like my little, I'm not a picture guy by any stretch of the imagination. I, I don't like pictures whatsoever. But I always like take a little picture of the table with just my books on there so I can kind of see where it's at. It's my little running journal of, you know, what I'm doing. I don't even really look back at them, but I have them, I guess, if I want to. And I looked at that, and I'm like, holy, pardon my French, holy fuck, man. Eleven goddamn books are on that table. I wrote it. I wrote it. I have a story in that one. I have a story in that one. I wrote it. I wrote, you know. And I'm like, how did that happen? 
How did that happen? Because, you know, it's very easy sometimes to lose sight of, of where I'm at with things, you know, that I'm having books coming out through, I have books out through four, five, five different publishers right now, if you count my short story stuff. And, um, <laughs> and the answer is hunger, you know. I, I have faith in hunger. I, I have faith in the fact that if people want something, that they will uh, work to get it, you know, for themselves. You can't apply your hunger to other people. And, th- and that's the thing that I think a lot of people also lose sight of, is just because I really want to work with Eric Powell, for example, and I could be super hungry for that. That does not mean Eric Powell really wants to work with me. And I can't make him work with me, or Riley Rossmo, or something like that. I was very, very fortunate that when Riley asked me to do a D.S. Del Morta story for him, and he really enjoyed it, that that he was really excited about working with me again on doing a, a Tales of Mystery cover. And he did two. He did one for the hardcover that people could get through Kickstarter, and he did the trade paperback one. That's in previews now. Staff pick. Pre-order, pre-order. Tales of Mystery Volume 1 from Devil's Do Entertainment. I know, Michelle. Um... But but people can use their hunger for what they want to get what they can get for themselves. And that's what I have faith in. I, I have faith in the fact that if people really want something for themselves, they can get it. You know, um, I, I, uh, I don't go out of my way to advertise it, but I don't hide the fact that uh, I teach martial arts. Anyone that's met me knows I am not built like your typical martial arts guy. Uh, I am not super tall and super lanky and made of licorice. You know, I'm not. I, I'm more of a, uh athletic build, I guess you could say. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not big boned or anything like that, but I got broad shoulders and I'm this, you know, I'm just, I'm not this thin, lithe guy like I was in college when I was like 110 pounds and wore a jean jacket and looked like it was like hanging on a hanger. You know, uh, uh, I've eaten a lot of steaks since then, and a lot of Arby's, um, and a lot of mocha shakes, a lot of ice cream, actually. A lot of ice cream. A lot of ice cream. I had ice cream before we started here. Um, but despite the fact that I'm not this, and a lot of your martial artists are these tall, skinny, lithe, super flexible guys and girls and kids and what have you. And I'm not built that way, man. Uh, uh, I'm just mechanically, I'm not built that way. You know, physiologically, I'm not built that way. But I wanted it. And I wanted to be good at martial arts. And I wanted to be a good student. Um, I wanted to be a good instructor. I wanted to be a good practitioner in mind and body. And no one could take my hunger away from me on those things. And as a result, I did become very, very good. Uh, I am good. Um, obviously, having a severe concussion sometimes maybe limits uh, my my ability to, uh, you know, maybe uh, do certain things, want to do certain things. It's like, yeah, no, 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 no free sparring. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, we're not going to we're not going to get into that so much. You know, you get these guys made of licorice. They can, you know, throw kicks at your head like they're like they're breathing. Um, but but I have faith in hunger. I, I have faith in the fact that if people want to do something for themselves, bad enough, they can do it. But that's the key: doing it for themselves. Um, 
it's a very bootstrap mentality. And, and obviously, that's not to ignore obstacles people have in their way. Uh, but if you want to build a bridge over the gap bad enough, if it takes a lifetime, you build the bridge. And maybe the only thing you'll ever do in your life is build a bridge over that one chasm. And maybe you build a bridge over that chasm and it takes a lifetime. And you get over it. You're like, okay, I, I beat this thing. I'm over this thing. I, I, I've succeeded in this thing. I've become a black belt. Or I've, I've written my novel. Or I have quit smoking. Or whatever the, whatever the hell it is, man. And maybe you do that. And you take five steps. And you look out and you see another 50 chasms. But you, you did what you set out to do. You know, you got over that first one. And then that, that's where hunger gets you. And hunger will get you as far as you can go in a lifetime. And I have faith in that over anything else. I've seen plenty of talented bands. I've seen plenty of talented writers. I've seen plenty of talented artists who don't have the hunger. You have to have the hunger. You don't have to be the best at something. But you'll go very, very far if you're the hungriest. And I'll shut up. There's the the gospel according to Dirk Manning. That's exactly it. That was it. Um, So you have a couple more shows, and people can check out your calendar that you're you're updating, I hope, on on your site. Yeah, DirkManning.com. I I finally, in 2013, decided to get a website, a real one. And, uh, and of course there's Twitter. There's the Twitter, Twitter. and the Facebook. And Facebook. I'm a Twitterer, but I'm a better Facebooker than a Twitterer. So you can, uh, so those are just very easy. Just search for your name. And, um. Manning, all one word. And, uh, okay. you can follow me, of course, if you're not already, at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter, which is, uh, I am more into the Twitter than the Facebook. I'm on Facebook just as much, but I think Twitter's better. Um, so I hope, you know, I wish you well on the rest of your tour, obviously, but hope yeah. hope that, uh, you know, you we, get to some different places next year. I, 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 it is well documented that uh, you, as well as a lot of people, want me to get uh, more on the East Coast area, more of the New Jerseys, and the, I need to get back to Pittsburgh and and things like that. And that is, uh, I need to get, I've never done New York Comic Con. Uh, that's one of my goals for next year is to do New York. Yeah, but New York sucks. <laughs> you know, I, I have not heard that. Uh, I know that there's obviously obstacles and challenges with a show that big, but, uh, you know, we'll find out. You know, I've done San Diego. I need to do New York now, so. Yeah. But that's good. That's good. So hopefully, um, you uh, will get to see some new cities. Hopefully I will get to see some new cities because I would like to not always be at the exact same shows. There's a, you know, if you're setting up as a professional, there's a lot of good in, in doing shows over and over again, the same shows to develop. You know, people know you're there and they come, you know. Uh, I can get into this whole discussion another time with you because we've already talked a very long time. But about... The, the mentality of doing shows and things like that. And and uh, either way, come this winter, because I know you were busting my chops earlier, by February, maybe by Valentine's Day, we'll, uh, I, I, I vow 
by February at that point. I vow I'll be back on the show because that's when, uh, when when Mystery comes out. I'll come back on and hopefully by then I possibly will be able to announce some uh, dates out in that area, some some appearances. Whether it be a tattoo shops were in Pennsylvania or conventions out in New Jersey or whatever, we'll see what happens. But I need to get back out to my uh, East Coast peeps. Yes, yeah, so. I I approve okay. of that. I approve. Well, all right. Um, so anyway, of course, thanks for always coming back and uh, you know taking the time. That was one of my favorite shows to be on. I just don't want to come up your airwaves all the time because you have so many other awesome guests on and stuff like that. You're going to be, I don't know. So I never know where you're going to be on a given weekend. I know somewhere. I will be in Virginia next weekend. So. I am doing, where am I going? I'm in, uh, well, I don't know. Depending when this airs, I've got shows in Columbus. And I've got shows in, I was just in Ann Arbor, Michigan. i got a show in Columbus, outside Columbus, Ohio, Pack Rat Comics in Hilliard, a really great shop. And then I will be doing... I cannot believe I, uh, uh. You're going back to Rups at the end, right? At Fremont. And then, uh, I feel like I'm. I think at this point I'm just doing. Packrat Comics in Hilliard, which is outside of Columbus, this coming weekend. And then I think I've got Rups Rups. And I think I'm done. Yeah, that's my last three. That, that'll be 14 to 14. So, oh my gosh. And that'll take me up to, uh, the first week in December. And then, uh, right after that, Brie comes out in February. So we got December, January, and then, uh, February is Brie. And then hopefully some East Coast stuff. And I might do a couple little mini appearances here and there in winter. But I'm mainly looking towards spring. Uh, like I talked about before, C2E2, things like that. But, but, uh, yeah, there might be a couple little winter appearances, uh, scattered in the East, perhaps. All right. Well, guys, um... February, latest. February. You will be back. Okay. Hopefully, you know, it could always be sooner, but February's fine, too. Um, so, guys, don't forget uh, that there's iTunes and Stitcher and places like that to leave, like, your feedback on the show. And, um, you know, I'm already working on plans for free comic book day at Comic Fusion, so... Staying <laughs> busy. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye.